Welcome to Change My Mind. Over 80% of people think we're becoming more divided. Does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds us back and why changing our mind can be such a powerful thing. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, based at Stanford and founder of the Depolarization Project. I'm hosting with Laura Osborne. Hi, Ali. Thanks very much. I'm a London-based corporate affairs advisor, particularly interested in reputation and leadership in a business context. And along with Laura and myself, I'm with Alex Chesterfield, an elected counsellor and behavioural scientist who's going to introduce our first formidable guest. Thanks, Ali. I'm delighted to be joined by our guest today, Deborah Mattinson. Deborah is co-founder of strategy consultancy Britain Thinks, and she was also pollster to Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of the UK. She's also an author of a book called Talking to a Brick Wall, which tells the story of the New Labour years through the eyes of the voter, and is one of Britain's leading commentators. Deborah, we are all really excited to hear about what you have changed your mind on. But first, tell us about the state of the nation. Yes, yeah, so we've been tracking through this year um, how people feel, the national mood, I suppose, in Britain. And it's not very happy. Um, and I think this is something that, in a way, the referendum a couple of years ago shone a light on. Um, and But in a way, it was something that was already there. So this kind of division in the country uh, with people for instance, describing themselves as haves or have-nots. Um, six out of ten describe themselves as have-nots, which is quite quite a lot of people for quite strong wording. Um, but what we found when we looked a little bit more closely is that this was, rather than a class issue, obviously, um, it was more of an age issue. Uh, and, of course, age is a bit of a proxy for education, which fits into it as well. So the younger you are, the more highly educated you are, the older you are, um, the less likely you are to be edu- educated beyond the age of 16 or 18. Um, the more likely you are to be uh, a Leave voter, the more likely you are to be a Conservative voter. And there are a whole bunch of sort of attitudinal um, views that flow from those things. And when did you start to see this change? I think it's been a long time coming, but I think it, the referendum sort of crystallised it. And suddenly, you know, that kind of 52... 48 vote was the thing that showed us to be really two countries, and that's what we are. In the context of the UK referendum, or Brexit, as it tends to be known as, was there any difference between these two groups in how people changed their minds as the campaign unfolded? Well, see, one of the really interesting things was, and frankly still is, that people haven't very much changed their minds um, and, you know, there was a massive sort of confirmation bias thing going on all the way through, um, which was so striking. So I found myself speaking on lots of platforms, talking about public opinion through the referendum campaign. And I took to saying, you know, hands up, who thinks Remain is going to win to the audience? And everybody in the audience would have their hand, hand up, including the people who were there representing the Leave campaign on the platform. Everybody would, Everybody thought Remain was going to win. And I would say to them, there is no evidence to suggest that this is the case. Because if you tracked the poll of polls all the way through, and people say the polls got it wrong, the polls did not get it wrong. The polls broadly got it right. Basically, the polls were neck and neck all the way through, and it didn't change, and nothing changed. 
and people didn't really change their minds. And have they changed their minds since the result? No, not very much. No, I mean, there's very little movement. Um, and again, you know, you find all the different camps jumping on their hobby horses and saying, oh, people are now, people are now in favour of a people's vote or people are now in favour of, of, you know, remain. And if we ran the, uh, the vote again, it would be different. I'm not at all convinced that it would. I mean, it's within a margin of error. I think that we're still neck and neck. Why do you think people didn't change their minds throughout the campaign? So I, I think there are two things going on. One is, is confirmation bias and the, you know, the kinds of people that were in the audiences at the events I was speaking at and actually on the panel too had a particular worldview that was shored up by everybody that they spoke to um, and they were absolutely convinced that this was right. Even if it didn't actually agree with where they were personally, they, they felt that the way people were forming their views was, you know, fitted a certain pattern. Confirmation bias is a type of cognitive bias which involves favouring information that confirms your existing beliefs. So, for example, my mum is from Liverpool in the north of England. She has a belief that northern people are inherently friendlier than southern people. Whenever she encounters a person from the north and who is friendly, she places greater importance on this evidence as it supports what she already believes. If, however, my mum encounters someone who is from the north but who is unfriendly, she'll discount this example for some reason, oh, they didn't really come from the north or oh, they were having an off day, as it doesn't support her prior belief. So confirmation biases impact how we gather information, but they also influence how we interpret and recall information. For example, people who support or oppose a particular issue will not only seek information to support it, they will also interpret news stories in a way that upholds their existing ideas. They will also remember details in a way that reinforces their beliefs. Then I think the other interesting thing is the difference between emotional and rational arguments. So I think that actually, if you were a kind of opinion former, whatever side of the camp you were on, you assumed that the rational arguments were going to be the ones that won. Apart from Dominic Cummings, perhaps, who I think understood this all the way through and is very smart um, and quite dangerous in my view. Um, but, you know, I, I think that people just dismissed those emotional arguments and didn't believe them. I remember, for example, talking to somebody very senior in the Remain campaign and saying, about halfway through, and saying, it's not going that well, is it? And he said, no, you know, fair cop, it's not going that well. Just you wait till next week. We have the ultimate game changer and everything will change. Now, what was going to happen next week was that Barack Obama was going to come over here and was going to sort of shake his finger at Leave voters and say, you're idiots. Why would I want to deal with you, silly little country? You know, what if you and, and they thought that this was going to suddenly the scales were going to fall from the Leave voters' eyes. And of course, they didn't. And subsequently, I mean, just, just to sort of show how that, that, that feeling has continued, we've been running this Brexit Diaries project, which we've now been running for quite a while. The first and most striking thing that we learned from doing it, where we had people all around the country, we had 100 people in 10 different locations, 52 of whom had voted leave, 48 had voted remain, so see what we did there. We had them keeping diaries, so we weren't prompting what they wrote about 
by giving them, um, you know, any, and by framing the question, by asking the question, just said, anything that struck you about Brexit? The most striking thing, the Leave voters never talked about the economy ever. And they talked all the time about kind of emotional things, the taking back control sort of stuff. Whereas the Remain voters were plagued by rational economic arguments. Now, it's fascinating to hear about Brexit and how people didn't change their minds before the referendum and how most haven't really changed their minds since. Is it just getting harder to change people's minds on anything? It's very slow to change people's minds. I think that changing a view that somebody holds that's quite entrenched and is about what is the best thing for them or their family or or a well-formed view of of a brand or of a you know of a politician it takes a long time to change and i mean of course people can change i've seen people change from being devoted tory voters to devoted late devoted labor voters and back again but i would argue on the whole they haven't really changed the other things have changed and changed in a way that that suits them i mean that's a bit of a sort of simplification because obviously you know, there are different sorts of people want and feel feel that different things matter to them. But basically, I think people are very slow to change their minds. Are some issues simply harder to change people's minds on? I think that it goes back to this sort of emotional and, and rational thing. And I think that again and again, um, you know, politicians and policymakers get it wrong by thinking that... If, if only people knew the stats that they knew that they would suddenly see the world in a different way. I mean, immigration is a great example of this, where we've done a lot of work on attitudes towards immigration. One of the exercises that we have done is sort of, you know, message testing and looking at how you can use communications to change people's minds. One of the things that we found was that when you showed people that had quite deeply held emotional views, information that was backed up by stats, it didn't, not only did it not change their minds, it pushed back and they would say, they would trust their uh, heart rather, rather than somebody else's numbers and would, would actually then challenge the numbers. So, you know, you would show them a stat that said, I don't know, uh, X percent of immigrants in this country are in fully paid employment and making a contribution to the treasury or whatever. And look at that. And they would say, I don't believe it or they'd challenge the source in some way, or just dismiss it, or just not notice it. That's absolutely fascinating. It totally reflects what the science suggests on how facts and statistics opposing our original beliefs are actually totally useless in changing our minds. In fact, not only are they useless, but it has the opposite effect, making us dig into our original beliefs even more. It's almost as if our brains are battening down the hatches to opposing views and we entrench even more to our own worldviews. So what, what are your thoughts on why politicians and policy makers tend to get it so wrong trying to change our minds? Because, because they move in circles where everybody has the same view as them and they just think that that must be right. I mean, I, I really do think it's that simple. Do any politicians get it right in changing our minds? Who would you say has been particularly effective in changing our minds? I think Tony Blair was pretty good, actually. I think Tony Blair had a very good handle on how to... He had a kind of very good instinctive feel for the national 
you know, mindset, I suppose, and, 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 and was a very good communicator. I mean, in the end, though, of course, his downfall was something, you know, he, he with, with Iraq, you know, it was something that he felt really passionate about. And then he just couldn't, he, you know, he couldn't find a way of communicating that and still can't, he still can't let it go. He still can't do that. But, but when he was turning around the kind of great big, you know, ocean liner that was, that was the Labour Party, sort of trundling in the wrong direction from the public's point of view, he did, I think he did an amazing job of kind of really understanding what was motivating people and what he needed to do and making it happen. He'd be a good example of that. Obviously, you've worked with quite a lot of senior level politicians. Are there any occasions when you have seen them change their minds? And if so, what particularly influenced them to do so? I mean, I think one good example, actually, is in 2001, in the early days of the Labour government, um, you know, there was a kind of honeymoon effect. And then people started to sort of think things weren't changing quickly enough. And what I think what what Labour thought was that, you know, once they started to sort of see um, some change, then that they would think, yeah, you know, my school has got better or the NHS has got better or, or whatever, whatever. But Labour was also trying to sort of stick to the, the previous government's sort of funding pledges and therefore not able to spend enough money. I, and I think Gordon felt that that perhaps mattered more than putting the money in. And in the end, we did a big piece of work that led to tax increase in 2001 that was, to the best of my knowledge, the most popular tax increase ever, which was putting NI up to fund a massive sort of ring-fenced extra spending on the NHS. And it was, you know, scoring or approval ratings in the kind of 80-odd percent. But it took a long time to make that argument, to make it internally, and to persuade Gordon that that was the right thing to do, and Tony, for that matter, because they all instinctively felt as a Labour government trying to cut it with voters that they shouldn't be putting taxes up. And in a way, it took a long time to persuade the public that it was the right thing to do too, because interestingly, the public's going in point was that the NHS at that point had declined to the extent that it wasn't worth saving anymore. And one of the things that we had to do was to persuade people that there was a way of doing it, that this was the way to do it, etc., etc. In your book, Talking to a Brick Wall, one of the main messages is how politicians fail to listen to those people they're meant to serve. So if politicians don't listen to us, the voters, how do they form their beliefs? I mean, I, I suppose primarily other politicians <laughs> and other people around them. I, I do think that. And people, and you know, and so many politicians would say, I don't need to do polling or focus groups I listen to people in my constituency or somebody came up to me in Tesco's the other day and, and won't realise that this person who's going to do that is obviously by definition very unusual. And of course, the issue with relying on what one or two people say is that you're more likely to engage with people who already think of you and remember information that reinforces your prior worldview. I think one of the issues with politicians changing their minds in light of new evidence or research or voters' needs is that it's perceived as weak, particularly by the media. So, for example, newspapers will cry out U-turn and, and pressure will be on to revert back to the status quo. So I guess our question is, how do we get to the point where it's more acceptable for people in leadership positions to change their minds without the risk and fear of punishment from the media? I mean, I think what we have to do in a way is to, to I, th I think that 
the electorate and politicians need a sort of more mature relationship with one another, actually, and I think that's the only way to make it happen. You know, one of the things that that I've done a lot in my career, and we've done it at Britain Thinks, and, and Vicky Cook and I did it in our, our, our previous company as well, is, is to promote deliberative research, the idea being that an ordinary opinion poll will tell you what people think given how little they know. But if you do something where you're actually able to kind of empower people to properly take part in decision-making by giving them information, you can get them to a different place. I felt for a long time that this would be a groundbreaking thing, would be to actually have the public properly involved in decision-making and the politicians to devolve decision-making, to create citizens' juries doing policy-making, like we have legal juries that we are happy to sort of devolve decisions about about legal matters to, uh, to do the same with policy. And that I think once people understand the complexity of decision-making and how difficult it is, then I, I think two things happen, actually. I think, I think policymakers can see that the public aren't stupid and that with the right tools can get properly involved and can come up with great thinking. But also the public see that it's not that straightforward. And I think that's the only way to break the deadlock, and I've thought that for a long time. And do you see when people are given the time and the information in these kinds of deliberative forums that they do change their minds? Yes, I think they do. And that is often, by the way, that doesn't mean throwing a load of facts and figures at them to go back to the earlier point. I mean, one of the best examples of that that I've ever seen is a citizen's jury that was about how to minimise harm from drugs. It's run by a local authority in London, which I ran some years ago. And we asked all of the jurors what their view was towards illegal drugs kind of going in. And they all had what one of them described as the Thai prison approach. In other words, pretty, you know, not very tolerant about, about, about people using drugs. By the end, they had all changed their minds. So, for instance, they all favoured the legalisation of cannabis and various other kind of quite radical interventions. And that was a mix of hearing some numbers, but mainly it was hearing some quite emotional testimonials from drug users and from people who had been, whose lives had been impacted by drugs in different ways. So I want to think about your research, which looked at what Britain wants from its leaders. It found the three most consistently important leadership attributes are having integrity, being decisive and being a great communicator. How do voters perceive politicians who change their minds? It's funny because that is something that has changed a little bit, because using exactly the same questions sort of, you know, 15 years ago, quite high up was listens to the public. And I think there's, I think that there is, we have different needs in a leader for different times. And I think when you're navigating a very troubled and difficult time as we are, and you know, if you ask people, what are the three words that spring to mind when you think about the state of Britain now, they'll say uncertainty, you know, they're very worried, anxiety. And I think at that time you want kind of strength and certainty in, in a leader, whereas in a, in a more um, benign context, you might, you, you might want somebody who, has, who listens, who, who's more fluid in their views. That's really interesting. Now, just thinking back again for a minute to those Labour years, you, you talked about Tony Blair having a very natural feel for how to present things to people. And of course, one of the other things that he is 
remembered for or certainly remarked on at the time for was the relationship with business and that changing having been a, a sort of difficult area for Labour in the past. What are your thoughts on how he did that and how he changed business's view of the party? Yeah, I mean, that was, to be fair, that started before him. I mean, it was John Smith who did the prawn, famous prawn cocktail offensive on the city where he just sort of lunched madly. I would say John McDonnell is doing that as well now, although you might say with less success, but I don't know. Um, different, different environment and actually some of the things that he's promoting are quite palatable to voters, I think. Um, but, I, you know, I think that... Um, I think that there was a belief, and I'm not sure this was ever proven, but that there, that you couldn't win an election without being trusted to run the economy and that there was a correlation between business friendliness and being able, to, able and capable to run the economy. And so that required quite a big shift of, of view. And I think this is where actually, you know, the, the partnership between um, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair was brilliant. And the two of them working together was incredibly effective. And I think there were just a, a, you know, a long list of interventions and they never felt job done will ticket. They kept going with it and you know, kept on and on and on where other politicians might have got bored and moved on to something else. They just knew that they had to be, they, they really made that a massive focus. One question that we ask every guest is to talk about an issue they may have changed their mind on. We were talking before we started recording and you said you'd found that particularly difficult. Well, I'd literally found it impossible. I mean, you gave me a list of questions and I didn't think, you know, I mean, to most of them, I'd look at them and I could immediately think of something that I would have to say about it until I turned over to the final page and it said, you know, tell us something you've changed your mind on. And I just couldn't really think of anything. And I mean, I began to slightly worry about that then, that that said something calling about me and my own inflexibility, but but genuinely I couldn't. And, you know, I, I started to think, well, okay, you know, I voted differently at the last election from how I voted in, in elections for some years before that. But I would say that's because the party that I used to vote for has changed and therefore is very different. And I don't think my views have changed. I think the party's changed. Yeah, I just couldn't really think of anything very much. I mean, you know, I've always been pro-gay rights, saying great. I mean, you know, I just couldn't think of anything very, I couldn't think of a big thing um, that I'd changed my mind on. You'd be surprised how common that is. Give me some follow-on questions. The first is when you observe focus groups or deliberative panels and you see people change their mind, is there anything you find inspiring or wish you had been able to change your mind on? I mean, actually, I think it's an interesting question, that isn't it? Because the difference is, I suppose my, you didn't ask me what I thought about a whole bunch of things and then ask me if I changed my mind. Maybe if you'd prompted me and I'd done that, I might have come up with something. So I was tending to think in quite a sort of narrow way about the obvious things that you might change, you know, big sort of moral questions or, you know, what does God exist or, you know, whatever. And I, I, I couldn't think of anything. But I think that the thing that is interesting when you do a piece of deliberative research is very often you are asking people about something that they just haven't really thought about before. And their, their going in point is very little knowledge and something that they, they genuinely don't really have very much of a view on and they'll have a sort of knee-jerk response. And then as you can introduce ideas and other points of view to them, you will be genuinely 
telling them about something new. It might be that they're not, in a way, not really, they're not changing a very well-formed point of view. They're almost creating a new point of view. And I think that is different, perhaps. Perhaps that's what actually happens when you do deliberative research, is that you're not changing people. They're forming a belief that they didn't have at all before. Does that mean it's harder to change someone's belief once they've already formed? And if someone is educated and taken a position, than if they hadn't taken any position at all? I would say almost definitely yes. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. I could ask you probably a million more questions, but we have run out of time. Thank you. You can find out more about us and the Depolarisation Project at depolarisationproject.com. We are very grateful to Caroline Crampton, our producer, The music, Dreams Become Real, from Kevin MacLeod, is licensed under Creative Commons. Join us again for the next episode of Changed My Mind.